This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, a senior writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us for another timely conversation, this time on investing in small companies. As I'm sure many of you know, it's been a tough time for small cap stocks, but one fund has managed to find some great companies over the years and beat its benchmark. And here to tell us how they pick stocks are George Smith and Chris Pearson, co-managers of the Davenport Small Cap Focus Fund, which has a five-star overall rating from Morningstar. Welcome, George and Chris. It is great to have you on the show. Lauren, thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. So we've got lots to cover, but before we start, I wanted to give uh, the audience some quick performance data. When I checked Morningstar this morning, the fund is up more than 7% this year, and that is handily beating the Russell 2000, which is up about 3%. And just for context, the large cap S&P 500 is up about 9%. Over five years, the fund has outperformed 99% of its peers in Morningstar's small blend category with an annualized return of 10.7%. So I'm very eager to dive in to learn more about how you stick, uh, how you pick stocks, your process, but very quickly, I'd love to know a bit more about Davenport. I read it's one of the oldest firms in Virginia, dating back to the 1860s. Uh, Lauren, we have been around uh, a very long time. I'll give you the elevator pitch, and I'll, I'll make sure it's a short elevator ride. But um, Davenport and Company, uh, the broker-dealer, was founded in 1863. Uh, Davenport Asset Management, which is a part of Davenport and Company, uh, started in 1984. And the cool story there is that it was born uh, out of our very own employee profit sharing plan and this notion of doing for clients exactly as we were doing for ourselves. To this day, most of our employees are invested alongside clients via our own profit sharing plan. Uh, and we now manage roughly $10 billion across a suite of equity products, which would include uh, the small cap fund that we're going to talk about today. Uh, that's something that Chris and I launched eight and a half years ago. Uh, the rationale being, you know, it was a logical extension of our, of our product line. Uh, also found that there were a lot of small cap ideas, which I think is perhaps our greatest strength from a research vantage point, uh, were falling through the cracks. Uh, and Chris and I were running another concentrated product called the Equity Opportunities Portfolio, 
uh, you know, with a pretty successful formula that we thought we could apply to the to the small cap universe. So that's that's some background, and that's what gave way to to the launch of the Davenport uh, Small Cap Focus Fund. Great. Well, I think it must be a first to have uh, two of us uh, in Virginia. I'm sitting in Charlottesville, and you're up the road in Richmond, which I think must make a first for the podcast. So it's great to have you on the show. Let's start with setting the scene and the current environment for small caps. There's a lot to worry investors at the moment. We have you know, high interest rates making it more costly for small companies to borrow. Investors are also worried about the prospect of a recession. And of course, the, the looming debt ceiling deadline. So just start out by giving uh, us some, some background in terms of how should investors be thinking about the case for owning small caps at the moment? Uh, Lorna, I think we, we both believe perhaps there's an element of timeliness here. You know, I, I think you know, we're more about looking at individual companies, right, than trying to make a prediction about an asset class. But you know, mm -hmm. over the long term, you know, small caps tend to generate excess return to compensate riskers or uh, investors for that uh, added risk that they're taking on. Um, if you look at more recent years, however, uh, the asset class has underperformed. In fact, I think, you know, through uh, Friday, over five years, you know, small caps were around 3% annualized and the S&P was around uh, 11%. Uh, and that spread has really gone into kind of a turbo mode recently with the S&P um, and the NASDAQ for that matter, outperforming small caps dramatically led by you know, large cap technology. And I think that because people are fearful of some of the things you just mentioned, right? And fearful of a slowdown, they are, uh, they're thinking growth has become more scarce. Therefore, they're willing to pay a premium for growth. Therefore, they're willing to pay a premium for some of those larger cap uh, bellwether companies. Um, and that dynamic has left a lot of stuff in its wake, uh, including small caps, which, again, have lagged. They look much cheaper than historical norms, look cheaper than the broader market. Uh, and to us, uh, you know, look pretty compelling right here. Yeah, so given the cheapness, my question was going to be, is this a good energy point for investors? And it sounds like it could well be. Again, we're not very good market timers, uh, but we, you know, we certainly love the things we own. And uh, we think the answer is yes. Well, good. That's a good segue. Let's talk a bit about your investment philosophy and what you're looking for. How do you pick great companies that are small now, but that you hope will be bigger someday? Yeah, I'll mention a couple of things that make us different and then, you know, hand it to Chris, who can maybe talk about more, uh, more about our kind of our underwriting process, if you will. But, um, you know, I think some of the, the, the differentiators you know, as I go through them, one, uh, you know, would be that we run a very concentrated product. Uh, as of today, it's, you know, we have 29 holdings and uh, that's pretty unusual in the small cap arena, but we we really believe in investing in with conviction um, and buying things that we, we really believe in. And certainly that can yield more volatile results, but, um, you know, Chris and I would always say that over time, we would prefer lumpy, but above average results to, to smooth average, not to mention below average results. Uh, Another differentiator would be that we have uh, an owner-operator bias. In other words, we over-index to companies with high inside ownership. Um, third thing I would mention would be that generally, you know, we have a lower risk profile and a higher quality bias than some peers. In other words, we like companies that have relatively muted uh, business risk and or balance sheet risk. Uh, and lastly, 
and I think this is really important is, you know, I, I think we have a natural uh, contrarian tendency. Um, uh, put simply, you know, we want to get a good deal. Um, and rather than just buy what everyone else is buying, we try to dig a little deeper uh, and form differentiated perspectives on things. And, you know, sometimes that means buying things that are out of favor. Uh, and, and that can require patience, but that has been uh, a really key ingredient to our, uh, our success. And Chris, I don't know if you want to elaborate on any of those points and maybe yeah. talk about kind of our underwriting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think one big picture thing to start with as well when thinking about what we're looking for uh, and, and how we go about finding it is that we very much approach each new idea, uh, potential investment, as if we are going to be the owners of that business. Um, we're looking for businesses that can generate lots of cash, reinvest in themselves at high rates of return, and thus produce these powerful compounding phenomena that we are all after as investors. Now, um, you know, to have strong businesses and, and to be you know, capable in terms of reinvestment, you have to have great management teams. And I think George touched on it when he pointed out our emphasis on insider ownership, not just high insider ownership, but uh, ownership cultures uh, where the management teams are heavily aligned with us shareholders. Um, and I think that quality plays itself out in, in terms of uh, not just the high insider ownership exposure, but uh, the profitability of the companies within our strategy, uh, especially relative to the index. Um, you know, we pride ourselves on employing a very deep, thorough and rigorous uh, diligence process with every name that we look at. I think in some ways it's, it's this that, you know, allows us to produce better risk metrics by being more concentrated. That's saying, um, you know, by having a smaller uh, basket of stocks and knowing these companies a whole lot better, we can actually minimize risk and are thankful to uh, have produced results to that effect. Um, we, we like to get to know our company's management teams very well, obviously dig deep into the financials, uh, you, you know, but to summarize it um, a little bit more succinctly, what we are after is free cash flow. Uh, we look for companies that can generate uh, significant amounts of free cash flow. Uh, our preferred metric is free cash flow before growth capital expenditures, because that gives us a sense of what, what is then, you know, left over from the business to reinvest back in itself. And, you know, from there, as uh, George mentioned, we're very opportunistic. We can be contrarian. We're willing to be patient. Uh, we, we like to find good businesses that are going through some, um, you know, period of uh, turmoil or facing headwinds that we feel like we understand and that are being, uh, you know, um, you know, blown out of proportion in the stock price. So um, I'll leave it there and see if we want to drill into yeah. any component of that. Great. Actually, both of you mentioned quality and, you know, quality means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but it sounds like, you know, generating free cash flow is definitely an element of quality. What else do you put into the sort of the, the overall bucket of quality that you're looking for? Lauren, I think overall, um, you know, having, you know, low and manageable leverage, i.e. debt levels is certainly going to be uh, top of the list, but, um, and, and just relatively muted business risk as well. One thing you would note if you look at our um, uh, portfolio is we are, are going to have a tendency to be 
very underweight or have minimal exposure to either uh, technology or healthcare. Um, and that is a reflection, I think, of our perception of the business risk in those industries, particularly when you get into small cap technology and healthcare. That is a totally different ball game than investing in these, you know, wide moat mega cap uh, tech companies. And you know what we find um, is that just the 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 risk of change and obsolescence and/or binary outcomes is so high in those two arenas that it really doesn't fit. Uh, our risk profile. There are certainly people who are very good at identifying uh, early stage companies in those worlds and, and making a lot of money in doing so, but it, it's really something that, again, just doesn't fit with the um, kind of the, the quality profile that we're looking for. Great. I do want to spend some time uh, talking more about where you're finding opportunities today. But before I do, just a quick reminder to the audience to please submit questions uh, in the Q&A. I'll make sure to leave some time at the end to go through audience questions. And also as a reminder that, you know, George and Chris will be discussing a number of different stocks today, but they're not making recommendations to buy any of the stocks that are mentioned. So with, with that, where are you finding uh, value today? Perhaps you can talk us through some of the, the topics in your portfolio, but also where you're also adding. And when we talk about a small cap in terms of size, do you have sort of a metric in terms of what sort of market cap you sort of don't go above in terms of what you define as small cap? Just, just give us some sort of basics about the portfolio. Sure. Working backwards uh, with that, I would tell you that, you know, the range of potential candidates is, is pretty wide and it tends to fall between 300 uh, million and, and 7 billion. Uh, but certainly when something begins to get upwards of six, seven, eight billion, you know, it becomes less of a fit and we might begin to dial uh, something like that back. But we do try to afford ourselves some flexibility, something such that if something is working and growing the way that we hoped it would, you know, we'll give it the latitude uh, to keep growing. Um, I, I think maybe we can just touch on our top two holdings. I'll mention one and Chris might mention the other, uh, and then we can come back to something that we've been buying recently. But um, the largest holding at the moment uh, is a company called Monarch Casino that fits many of the things, if not all of the things that we've discussed so far. Uh, they are a regional casino operator. Uh, they have two properties, one in Reno, Nevada, uh, one in Blackhawk, Colorado. Uh, it is quintessential owner-operator -oper situation. Uh, management uh, and the Farahi family owns just over 25% of the company. The CEO and uh, co-founder, John Farahi, owns roughly uh, 10%. Uh, and it's a company that's in two great markets that have very attractive organic growth profiles. Uh, we think they can generate in excess of $6 a share of free cash flow. That's on a roughly $66 stock. Uh, and think that a ton of that is going to be returned to us uh, in the form of um, buybacks and uh, dividends. And because they have such little debt, there's a chance that you know they can find a third property to add to the mix and kind of, you know, do their magic with it and improve results and perhaps create a lot of value that way. And ultimately, it's the type of company that we think could be acquired, perhaps at a substantial premium relative to uh, its current trading price. So that at the moment is our top position, okay. uh, followed short or, or closely by um, New Market, which uh, I'll let Chris highlight. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I guess before I start on new market, I think it, it, this is a good exercise because it shows, you, you know, two, uh, you know, 
long-term holdings for the strategy, uh, you know, one kind of being more of a, uh, you know, kind of growth oriented, um, you know, quality compounder. The other uh, was much more of an opportunistic uh, purchase for us. Um, so some background on new market. Uh, this is a petroleum and fuel additives company. So somewhat of a uh, boring business. You've got about one to 2% volume growth per year in this business, but uh, it is an oligopoly. You have four players, you have very good pricing power. Um, and you know, because of that, over time, the company has been able to generate a lot of cash uh, and pass on commodity price increases, uh, albeit with some volatility uh, through the margin structure. So uh, when you, you go back to the end of 21, coming out of the pandemic, and certainly, um, you, you know, with the advent of the war in Ukraine, you had this massive spike in oil prices. This really impacted new markets margins um, because they, they couldn't really keep up with the pace of base oil increases. This compressed their margins um, down into the high single digits. Uh, the stock was languishing. Uh, we saw an opportunity to lean into that headwind, um, anticipating that once the company was able to pass through these price increases, the margins would ultimately recover. Uh, fast forward to today, they just put up two very strong quarters with margins rebounding back into the high teens. Uh, we still, even though the stock has worked very nicely, uh, think the shares are quite cheap on our estimates. Uh, the company has a very solid balance sheet, uh, has been a great steward of capital over the years, uh, has begun to return cash to shareholders through share buybacks, and it pays a nice dividend, yielding around 2.2%. Um, so stop there and see if you got anything on those two, or sure. we can well, jump into something we've been kind of building up the ranks recently. Well, just for some context, I believe you've owned both of those companies since the fund launched. Is that right? And have you sort of been building over the years and adding to the portfolio in terms of both those positions? That's right. And in both cases, um, you know, it, they were, it was a matter of really opportunistically adding uh, during times of duress. In the case of Monarch, uh, we were aggressively building that position right in the throes of the pandemic. And clearly things look pretty bleak. And the stock at a point uh, was in the low to mid teens. Uh, and our thinking was, first of all, we were assuming we would ultimately come out of that, but also interested in Monarch because we knew uh, with their low debt levels, they had more staying power and the ability to survive longer than some peers and come out on the other side even stronger. So uh, I think both you know, kind of represent the you know, quintessential opportunistic buys. Mm -hmm. So earlier you mentioned that you're underweight in terms of technology and healthcare. Perhaps you can tell us a bit about where you're overweight. Chris, you want to field that? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, sure. At the moment, um, you, you know, be consumer, uh, industrials, financials. But I'd say within that, you know, we have very diversified exposure, right? If you look at our financials exposure, it's a couple of specialty insurers, a holding company, uh, very little in the way of credit credit sensitive uh, banks for that matter. We have no exposure to, to uh, the small cap banking sector. Um, you know, I guess I'll just say that really, we, we really do try to focus on, we do practice this, building this portfolio from the bottom up. So there's very little in the way of top-down uh, tactical capital allocation on our part. Uh, we're just 
you know, again, scouring the universe for great opportunities, uh, great businesses that fit our criteria and the sector allocations come together as a result of that. Um, now, that being said, we're very sector aware and, and we, we, you know, are very cognizant of exposure to various factors uh, and monitor our sector exposure uh, accordingly. But, um, you, you know, I think we like to keep it stock specific and, and uh, not necessarily tactical thematic, uh, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, some of the stocks you've uh, added more recently to the portfolio and, and why. Yeah, sure. I can start and then uh, kick it over to George if he has anything to add. Um, you know, I think, it, you know, what we hope has come through is that, you know, we're looking for, you know, one of the things that we like about small caps, right, is that you have this low denominator effect, right? You've got smaller companies with smaller market share, uh, smaller bases off of which to grow. And if these companies can get it right, uh, it can be really powerful. I mean, take, for example, one of our longer term holdings, a company called Kinsale Capital, a, a specialty insurer, insurer in the excess and surplus lines business. Um, you know, this is absolute cherry picking here because, you know, this one's worked out great and plenty of others haven't. But, you know, this is a business that started out with $400 million market cap. Um, it, when it IPO'd in 2016, and now it's sitting with a seven and a half billion dollar market cap. And by the way, even at seven and a half billion dollars, the company only has one percent share of its total addressable market. So plenty of room to continue to grow. And I think that's the the power of small cap investing, and, and certainly is what we're after. Um, you know, one name that we have been adding recently, um, and again, I'm not making promises that it's going to do what Kinsale did, but um, it is a company called Innovus. Uh, this is a player in the medtech space. Um, it's a name that we've had um, familiarity with for quite some time, having invested in Colfax uh, in our equity opportunity strategy. Um, Colfax was founded by the Rails brothers of Danaher Lore. Uh, this business was broken apart from their welding business called ESAB and is now a standalone public company. What we like about this business uh, is that there are many ways to win. And we think it could put together the powerful combination of excess earnings growth, margin expansion, and potentially a re-rating in the valuation um, as some of the things in the thesis come together. Uh, when you look at the business, it has two segments. Uh, uh, the, um, it's a business called P&R, um, which is called prevention and recovery. Think bracing, um, you know, the football players wear those big braces on their knees. If you break your toe, you get a boot, et cetera. This is a very stable, mature, high cash flow as asset. Uh, they have about 20% share in this business. Um, the exciting element of this story is the company's uh, reconstructive surgery business, where they sell hip, knee, uh, ankle, foot, um, technologies and replacement shoulders as well. And this business is growing very quickly. Um, they only have about 2% share. This is a much higher margin business. Uh, it's a platform upon which the company uh, can continue to, continue to do M&A, uh, which should add further value. And at the moment, uh, this higher margin, faster growing business is only about 30% of the revenues. So we see a potential scenario where this business continues to take share, 
They continue to fuel it with acquisitions. Uh, you know, it gets to be 40, 50, 60% of the overall, all of a sudden you get this margin uplift. And when you look at the valuation disparity between Innovus and some of its medtech peers, such as Stryker, Zimmer Biomed, what have you, uh, there is a massive valuation uplift opportunity there. Um, so that's what excites us about the fundamentals. Uh, we've known the management team for some time. Uh, the balance sheet's in great shape, just over a turn of leverage. And, um, you, you know, think this could be a real, real quality compounder for the strategy over time. Great, thank you. We've got lots of questions that have come in from the audience, so I'm actually going to pivot to some of those questions now. We have also had a couple of questions asking for the funds ticker. And so just uh, for those of you who are interested, if you want to look it up, it is DSCPX. And if you look it up, you can see uh, more about the fund uh, through that ticker. So Rohab asks about healthcare small caps versus technology small caps in the short term. And I know those are both uh, areas that you don't have a lot of exposure to. Uh, in particular, he is curious about EV startups. Uh, and I guess a, a number of these EV startups are not small cap companies, but perhaps you could have a, just a quick comment uh, on those for Rohab. Sure. Uh, I mean, those are two very exciting areas. I would tell you on the healthcare point, um, when you get into the world of small cap healthcare, um, you know, it's it, a lot of biotech companies, right? And you can make a lot of money in biotech stocks when you get it right. But generally, in the smaller cap arena, um, you're betting on companies that are trying to launch one drug and are hoping to get that one drug uh, approved. And if it fails, uh, you know, the, the, the hit to equity value can be pretty catastrophic. So those generally aren't going to fit the risk profile that we're looking for. Uh, and the same would apply generally to um, you know, smaller cap EV stories. Uh, a lot of exciting things happening in that world, but tends to be dominated by some larger cap companies. And the risk of failure when you get into a smaller cap set is just, just too extreme for us. Great. Paul asks, how much stock can one put into technical metrics such as price to book and debt to equity? I, well, uh, there, those those two, I would say, are, are you know more so valuation metrics than technical metrics, but would certainly be key ingredients that uh, you know we tend to look at when when trying to value a company. And I guess I would just add on to that um, because I, I assume your your listeners are asking specifically about small caps. You know, you do have to be careful with some of the reporting in various small caps. Um, you know, when looking at price to book, you really do need to get in and scrub the financials and make sure that that equity value uh, is is a true tangible equity value that is not mis misrepresented by some uh, accounting obscurity. And some of the various data co collection services uh, can misrepresent things. So I'd, I'd, I'd caution people to actually read the filings. Um, and uh, then again, as George said, yes, absolutely relevant metrics that we use. And there's actually a follow-on question from Zvi who asks, what is the most important metric in evaluating a small cap company? Well, it can, it can vary by business and by industry a little bit, but Chris touched on it earlier. And the most important metric for us is going to be, you know, free cash flow that is available to shareholders 
to either be, or maybe let's say free cash flow that's available to management to either be reinvested in the business or returned to us as shareholders uh, in the form of dividends or buybacks. Great. Now, Greg asks, where is there the most value in small caps? And I realize that's a hard question to answer, but he asks, presumably in the micro caps with no Wall Street research coverage. Yeah, I think. Go ahead, Chris. No, I, I think you just touched on something that we think applies to the small cap uh, space as a whole is just the um, greater inefficiencies of um, less in Wall Street coverage, less people paying attention. It really allows you to go in and differentiate yourself with fundamental research. So yeah, to the extent that micro caps probably are even more underrepresented in terms of sell side coverage, um, you know, that, that can certainly be the case as as you know, you, you know, as you go down the market cap spectrum, you also run into liquidity uh, issues as well, which uh, can can inhibit some funds, uh, but certainly not individuals. So um, those would be my comments. I don't know if George has anything to add there. No, I think that's spot on. Pankaj uh, is curious about your view on AI and companies within or outside FANG. And I should just remind the audience that you know FANG is the acronym for five of the best performing tech stocks mm -hmm. over the past decade. And those are certainly not small caps. We have Facebook, which is now Meta, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, uh, Google, now Alphabet. So uh, I'm not sure how you can mm -hmm. answer that, but maybe perhaps a, a view on AI. Yeah, I can take a stab at that. Um, obviously, a, a lot of these technologies are very, very new, um, but they're also very exciting, potentially disruptive. Uh, transformative, uh, all these superlatives. Um, as George touched on at the beginning, I mean, I think the very early clear and apparent winners are the larger cap um, technology companies, which is why many of them have outperformed. Um, you know, they have access to proprietary data sets. They have access to uh, scaled compute. Um, many of them have already developed these technologies. So it's, it's um, you, you know, uh, it makes sense to assume that investors would gravitate there. I will say that we are doing a lot of work looking at our portfolio, looking at the universe, uh, trying to find beneficiaries. Um, it is a little bit tougher in the small cap space because as George pointed out, um, you know, you just don't have scaled players in the tech arena. Um, you know, that being said, I think there are a lot of companies that maybe aren't at the epicenter of tech um, that, that could potentially be beneficiaries. We own a position in a healthcare uh, human resource, resource management company called Alight, um, tickers A-L-I-T. Um, despite being you know, a $5 billion company, uh, this company has relationships uh, with over 5,000 clients. It represents 70% of the Fortune 100. It has 36 million people on its platform. And you know what they do is help large companies administer their health plans. I think with some of these tools from generative AI, large language models, uh, they're gonna be able to uh, help reduce costs, reduce reliance on data, or sorry, on call centers, um, help constituents get better outcomes through better utilization of their care. And 
again, because they have all of this access to the data, you know, they have the ability to train these, um, these models uh, and, and hopefully differentiate themselves. But that's, that's one example in small cap land where, um, you know, we think it makes some sense to, to label them a beneficiary. But again, um, you can rest assured we're going to be doing a lot of work on this as, as the situation evolves. So we do have one question that hasn't come up at all uh, in our conversation, and that's around ESG. And M asks, how do you rate ESG targets of small cap stocks in terms of current and future performance? I'm not sure whether that's something that even sort of comes into play in the portfolio. Uh, I would say everything that we have just discussed is, is you know, a much more important driver. We do have ESG protocols. Uh, we do look at uh, things mainly, you know, from a risk management perspective through an ESG lens. But, you know, at the end of the day, our process, if, if you go back through what we've laid out in terms of looking for, you know, good businesses with great management teams that are great stewards of capital to treat their pe people fairly, um, you know, a lot of these things take care of themselves. Um, it's not that ESG is not important. It's not that we don't pay attention to it. Uh, we have a rigor around it um, and, and we have a research effort around it. Uh, but I think that, you know, everything that we got to in the earlier part of this discussion certainly carries the day. Mm -hmm. Well, we have time maybe for just sort of one more question. And Jeffrey must have heard you speaking about Innovus, and that ticker is ENOV. And he says, I'm looking at ENOV and I see a PE of 24. Can you talk a bit about the valuation appeal of Innovus? Yes. Um, you know, we, we look at things on an operating cash flow metric. Um, and, and just to give a, a kind of a comparison, if you look at ENOV, uh, relative to the uh, MedTech uh, reconstruction peer set, it trades at around, you know, 11, 12 times EBITDA. And uh, these companies are trading for 18 to 20 times. Um, and so that's that valuation disconnect. And then when we put that in the context of earnings growth, um, we feel like trading at a, you know, low double digit type multiple of cash flow when you have a business that's capable of growing revenue, high single digits, EBITDA low double digits, uh, is a very, very fair trade. Well, I'm afraid that we'll uh, have to leave it there. That's all we have time for today. Uh, thank you to the audience for tuning in. And thank you so much, George and Chris, for joining me today. Thank you, Lauren. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. We hope you all can join us again tomorrow. Thursday, May 25th, is the third anniversary of George Floyd's death. Market Watch reporter Emma Ackerman will speak with Gary Cunningham, president and CEO of Prosperity Now, about efforts to address the racial wealth gap, increase black home ownership, tackle the effects of redlining, and reduce tax disparities. Thank you for listening. Be well and have a wonderful day.